Welcome to Plato's Pod, where we're engaging a group discussion on selections from the complete works of Plato, the philosopher and geometer who wrote nearly 2,400 years ago. Today is January 23rd, 2022, and I'm your host, James Myers. It is a pleasure to be joined in dialogue by participants from the Toronto Philosophy and Calgary Philosophy Meetup groups. Whether you have been with us before or are here for the first time, whether you have experience with or are new to Plato's works, I encourage you to add your voice to our dialogue. Today we will cover from the beginning to 77c of the Phaedo, the dialogue in which Socrates discusses the nature of the soul with his friends assembled on the day of his execution. As always, to focus our discussion, I have suggested three themes, which are posted on the shared drive linked to the event notice on meetup.com. I'll invite participants to exchange their thoughts on today's reading, and as they do so, I will briefly summarize and try to connect different perspectives to a common thread of ideas. We can go in any direction the group chooses, but for everyone's benefit, please relate your comments and opinions to Plato's text. To contribute your thoughts, please use the raise hands feature in Zoom. Using the first name from your screen profile, I will call on you to speak in the order that hands are raised, giving precedence to those who haven't spoken before. After we finish recording in two hours, I welcome any participants who wish to remain online for Plato's Cafe, a casual half-hour discussion on Plato or philosophy in general. With Phaedo today, we can expand on themes introduced two weeks ago in our dialogue on Philippus, including the unlimited and limited, and the ratios of these opposites in our becoming. We can consider how knowledge of the equal, which we can think of as the point of no difference or no opposite, allows the soul to apply reason in the present. Socrates states categorically that all things in the present come to be from opposites, and it is the soul's task to find equivalents in their combinations. Of course, no two of us would always judge physical things equally. For example, what you call a coffee mug, I might call a teacup, and they both work well for either purpose. But Socrates' point is that our souls retain forever the idea of equal, and therefore its opposite, the idea of different. It is to the equal, Socrates says, that we compare our sensory inputs in determining the relative nature and purpose of the physical objects that surround us. Relativity of one thing to another, and their sequencing, are key to knowledge and recollection, as highlighted in both Phaedo and Philobus. It's worth recalling that everything physical is in continuous motion. Nothing stops to allow us to take a precise measure of equal and opposite. The ground beneath our feet rotates at 460 meters per second, and the Earth orbits the Sun at 30,000 meters per second, and so do our bodies. Our knowledge of all things physical is therefore limited by Heisenberg's uncertainty principle. It says that our measurement of a physical object's present position is not equal to our knowledge of its speed and the direction of its mass from past to future. Perhaps with this modern appreciation of inequality in physical knowledge, we can appreciate all the more Socrates' argument for the equal as the boundary between what a thing is and what it is not. The immaterial soul is not subject to the uncertainty principle, but Socrates asserts the soul can easily be confused by our five physical senses, as illustrated by the allegory of the cave in the Republic. Therefore, Socrates reasons, to approach pure knowledge in life, a philosopher aims to achieve, as closely as possible, separation of body and soul. Such a condition of separation is finally attained on death, to which Socrates is happily departing. Being born with no knowledge of the physical world, what is the source of our idea of the equal? Socrates says the equal is permanently imprinted on the soul, which exists before birth and after death. Do we agree with him that death is the separation of soul from body, and that the soul survives without the body? 
But if the soul dies with the body, then what is the source of the soul of a newborn? If the soul survives death as a continuum without beginning or end, then is it true that the soul recollects what it knew before? Does the soul's capacity for reason always strive to reach that which is equal? To approach these questions and the question of the soul's immortality, let's start by reading from 70D to 71C with Socrates' reasoning about things coming to be in opposites and the balance of equality in the two processes of becoming. And let's review what Plato means by becoming in the middle of the opposites of being and non-being in the context of the uncertainty principle. And so let me share my screen uh, and put up the, uh, the reading. And if everybody can see my screen. Uh, I thought we would read this part uh, from 70D to 71C. It's relatively short. It's between Socrates and Cebes. And I'm just wondering if I would have a, a volunteer to read either part. I could do Socrates if no one else wants. or, or Probably Cebes. You know, I'm always good for that. James. All right. Well, thank you very much, Moshe. Um, all right. Well, I'll do Socrates then, if that's all right. Um, so this is, again, talking about this idea of equal and opposites. And so Socrates starts off by saying, let us examine it in some such a manner as this, whether the souls of men who have died exist in the underworld or not. We recall an ancient theory that souls arriving there come from here, and then again that they arrive here and are born here from the dead. Do not confine yourself to humanity if you want to understand this more readily, but take all animals and all plants into account. And in short, for all things which come to be, let us see whether they come to be in this way, that is, from their opposites, if they have such, as the beautiful is the opposite of the ugly and just of the unjust, and a thousand other things of this kind. Let us examine whether those that have an opposite must necessarily come to be from their opposite and from nowhere else. As for example, when something comes to be larger, it must, it must necessarily become larger from having been smaller before. Yes. And if something, small, if something smaller comes to be, it will come from something larger before, which, which became smaller. That is so. And the weaker comes to be from the stronger and the swifter from the slower? Certainly. Further, if something worse comes to be, does it not come to be from the better and the juster from the unjust? Of course. So we have sufficiently established that all things come to be in this way, opposites from opposites. Certainly. There's a further point, something such as this about these opposites. Between each of these pairs of opposites, there are two processes, from one to the other, and then again from the other to the first. Between the larger and the smaller, there is an increase and decrease. And we call the one increasing and the other decreasing. Yes. And so too, there is separation and combination, cooling and heating, and all such things, even if sometimes we do not have a name for the process. But in fact, it must be everywhere that they come to be from one another, and that there is a process of becoming from each into the other? Assuredly. Well then. Is there an opposite to living, as sleeping is the opposite to being awake? Quite so. What is it? Being dead. Therefore, if these are opposites, they come to be from one another, and there are two processes of, gen two processes of generation between the two? Of course. 
Thank you, Moshe, for that. And uh, so I just wanted to get uh, those views on this, you know, this idea of coming to be from opposites, you know, and, and, you know, we'll go on later, I think, towards the end of today's session and talk about this idea of recollection, you know, that one opposite, one thing triggers a memory of an opposite or something similar. So it's always this kind of process in we think in opposites is is what they're trying to say at the end of, of today's reading. Uh, and I'm just wondering about this idea of, you know, things coming to be from opposites and, you know, your own experience, you know, is this, is this, um, you know, kind of, does this sound relevant? You know, can you think of examples, you know, other practical examples other than what they talk about here, you know, for the example, you know, for example, this idea, uh, sleeping being the opposite of awake, um, you know, just, and this leads to then, I think, a discussion of, of you know, whether uh, whether the soul exists after death and before birth. You know, where what's the opposite of each of those two processes? There's also this idea of, of two processes that Socrates uh, introduces here. This idea of when you go from one thing to another, then you have to go back. There's actually a, a good reading on that. Uh, it's actually in the in the next section here uh, that I've got highlighted on the screen from 72a to 72d. Maybe I'll just read this part uh, uh, as well, and, and we can talk about this too in connection with what we've just read. But we'll take Moshe, your thoughts? Okay. Um, this is a tricky question, obviously. Uh, opposites... I think in the contemporary terms would be called uh, contraries. Uh, opposites are not uh, contradictories. Uh, you know, it's not greater and not greater, lesser and not lesser, but you've got, you know, greater is opposed to lesser and hotter and colder and higher and lower. And contraries are, are, are funny. Uh, let me just take the higher and lower and change that into up and down, okay? And suppose I, um, you know, built a ladder, you know, an extraordinary ladder to be sure that went from here to the moon. And I would start climbing up the ladder. And I'm climbing up and up and up and up. And then I get to a point when I'm actually climbing down and down and down and down, but I have not changed my direction. So up and down being contraries, both can happen at the same time, or is there some sort of confusion there. Um, if we go to the greater and lesser, um, you know, I, I'm thinking of, of you know, my, um, um, I, I, I don't have an older brother, but if I had an older brother, I can imagine the time when my older brother would be greater, he would be taller. And as I grew, he, I, he eventually became equal and then he became smaller. But uh, he didn't change, okay? Just like the direction of the person climbing up the ladder didn't change. Um, Alice in Wonderland gives us all sorts of examples of, of contraries at work. So I, I wonder if, 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 um, uh, if we press Plato on this, uh, if he can really hold you know, fast and true to this idea of contraries that he has and that opposites coming from opposites. An interesting thought there, and I, I hadn't realized the you know, that use of the term, the, of the term contraries. Uh, but it makes me think maybe in some of the examples that you gave Moshe that, um, 
maybe these are terms that apply in some sort of ratio between things. You know, it, it takes me back, I think, to our discussion two weeks ago with Philibus and that distinction that Socrates made between the unlimited and the limited, whereas in the limited, you necessarily have a fixed number of things. In the unlimited, you don't have a fixed number. And that's where terms like, you know, larger and smaller uh, come in in terms of, you know, relativity, expressing relativity. When you can't express a, a defined number, you have to express things uh, relative to each other. And I, I like the example you gave of, you know, if you had a, a, an older brother at one point, he would be, uh, you know, taller or larger than you, but then that doesn't necessarily hold for all time. So it's kind of this idea of, uh, of relativity. And so it's an interesting use of the word contraries. And um, I wonder if if we do see a difference between the idea of contraries and opposites. So it's a, it's a good question that you raised. It makes me think, and I'm not, I'm not sure what the answer is, but I'm wondering what, uh, what others' views are, are on that. Uh, Steve. Yeah, I was thinking along the same lines. Um, I would say it a little differently. So say if we think of uh, a baby elephant is large, you know, it, it is large, but it's uh, it, it's not large if you from the perspective of a full-grown elephant. Then it's then it's small, so it's both large and small. And the idea of what the, the he's trying to it seems like it's he's trying to use it as a proof and you know to say that something um, small something large comes from something small or something small comes from something large. I don't, I don't see how that proof necessarily holds true. I mean, sometimes, you know, if you have a snowball going down a mountain, it's going from small to large. And then when it melts, it goes from large to small. But, you know, a, a baby elephant, you know, genetically comes from something large, but I don't think in this example, it's coming from something large, but it's, you know, it's, um, it's, I think it's more the, the relativity isn't really, um, you know, a concept that uh, is being used. So I, I was thinking the same sort of thing as uh, Moshe was. Well, thanks. And I think that's, um, I think that's something that we definitely need to explore in this, you know, that, uh, um, you know, does, is the proof sufficient? And I think, you know, this is, fairly early in the dialogue um, where, uh, you know, they haven't fully established all of the terms of what they're talking about. But uh, I think we can, we can look further in a dialogue and we see if we can see if this uh, is necessarily the case, in fact, or whether there's some holes in the argument. Um, I'm wondering, actually, you know, this idea of a reference point, for example. So if something is said to be large, what is it large with reference to? Um, and, you know, is it large with reference to that which is smaller or is it large with reference to some sort of universal uh, point that we can all refer to and all say that, you know, everything with respect to that universal point is larger and or, or anything greater than that universal reference point is larger and anything less than that universal reference point is smaller. Uh, so these are all good questions. And I think we have to look for that kind of proof and see if we accept what Socrates is saying that, you know, do all things come to be from opposites? 
Um, Jose, what are your thoughts? Yes, um, the, the first thing I, I try to discern is we typically use the smaller, taller, when we compare something to something else, right? My cousin is taller than my brother, or my house is bigger than your house, or my car is faster than your car. We typically use that then a comparison. But in this case, he's referring to a, the same object. So it's not referring to um, an elephant is large. He's saying the same object to be smaller had to be bigger before. And the same object to be bigger had to be smaller before. And that's, I think, more understandable. You yourself or your shoe size or your height cannot be taller than before if you were not smaller before and vice versa. If you shrink with age, I mean, you couldn't be small, less tall now than before if you were not taller before. So that's the way I chose to interpret it is um, opposites of the same object mm. as opposed to comparisons. Mm. That, that's all I want to say. And, and thank you. I think that's a, a point that we can maybe appreciate here, you know, as, as we look back on the words that they used. Uh, or that Socrates used, you know, the, um, you know, sleeping from, from waking, for example, you know, those, I guess, could be the same object in the, the term that you, in the sense that you used, Jose, in, in the sense that they are states of consciousness, you know, so with respect to that state of consciousness, that being the same object, um, then you have these opposites, uh, you, you have one one extreme of the state, which is of the state which is sleeping, and the other extreme of the state which is uh, uh, wakefulness, uh, and so maybe that's one good way of uh, of thinking about it. So thank you for raising that, and then we'll go to Bill, and then Jose J. Well, I, I agree with Jose that uh, that maybe the, uh, a good way of understanding it is to compare it to itself, and I think everything in life certainly does grow. And get smaller, the natural thing. You know, we 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 grow from little ones to big ones, and then we the body decays or the substance decays, and they get small again. And even in the physical world, with mountains and valleys and rivers, same thing. So in that sense, yes, we all come from small and we go to big, and then we go to small again. But you know, the other the other point was the op the opposites. Everything comes from opposites. That's a different issue. Uh, small and big are just natural things, I think. And uh, but coming from opposites, it's a little bit trickier. <laughs> I'm not quite sure how to figure that one out. Coming from, say, good a good person to a bad person, then back to a good person. You know, from a criminal to a saint, back to a back to a criminal. Yeah, um, I, I haven't figured that one out yet. So maybe someone can help me. A good question. I think that um, I wonder if he, you know, if he's saying that, you know, if you are good, that you necessarily were bad at one point, um, or whether those terms opposites are, are comparative terms, and then somewhere in the middle we find that equal, the equal between good and bad, which is neither good nor bad, to which we're making the comparison. And maybe that's an example, Bill, of, of state of being, you know, a good state of being versus a bad state of being. Um, and this idea of coming to be, you come to be from a certain point, and that point may be 
defines the two opposites. Uh, so maybe that's just a, a thought there that we can explore. Um, Jose J. Yeah, <clears throat> uh, I find I find that there is a I don't know if there is a little bit of is a hole in the argument because uh, he jumps from from comparing things relative they are relative to things that they are absolute. For example, he like you can be more good or or less good or le tall or more tall or less or shorter, etc. But uh, he uses that to reach the conclusion that uh, that uh, death comes from from life and life comes from death. You cannot be less death or more death or or less alive. So I don't know. This this jumping is a, a little bit suspicious for me. I think. And thanks for raising that you know, distinction of you can't be more dead. And I think maybe that's referring to the body as opposed to the soul. And I think he's trying to make a, a point here about the nature of the soul. Um, and, you know, they'll go on to say it's, it's a lengthy proof that, you know, the soul exists both after death and before birth. You know, that's how this dialogue winds up later on that, that we'll see in a, in a later session. But um you know, maybe it's that distinction of the physical versus that which is not physical. And the physical is always, you know, in one certain state or the other. Um, but maybe the, the not physical thing, the soul, is is not subject to that. So uh, that's definitely a thought that we can explore. And I think we need to look for more proof, I think, is what we're we're discussing here, is that we're not we're not satisfied with just what they're offering in this particular reading. Uh, Bill, further thoughts on that? In terms of the in terms of the soul surviving after death, that's a tricky one for me. But <laughs> it may not be uh, like a, like an intact uh, uh, an intact being that survives, even in, in a fear in a, in a, oh I don't know how to express this, but it could be just that when we die, that our our, our something lives on in the in the in the world amongst other people in terms of what we what we thought what we taught to other people and how we've acted in our lives and maybe that's what the soul is just a remembrance in other other folks I don't know if that has anything to do with what he's talking about here but that's that's how I think of the soul the you know, remaining behind. It's it's actually a really good point, you know, as we'll wind up today's session talking about this idea of recollection. And certainly I think we do recall the souls of others or the, the living souls of others who have, who have since died. Um, I think Socrates is getting, you know, more specific though, that, that the soul itself lives not just in other memories, but it itself persists. So the soul in itself is a term that he uses a number of times. And um, I think that's something that we definitely need to explore, but it doesn't negate what you said, Bill, in terms of, you know, memory of the soul persisting in others, um, which is, is maybe we can find the intersection of that memory in others. And then, you know, this possible existence of the soul in itself. Um, JK, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, um, is he making a distinction between um, memory, personal memory, 
and recollection. It's because it seems like the recollection is something that you have um, that is, you know, beyond one's personal memory. That, uh, you know, you think of your consciousness, <clears throat> or maybe it's, you know, uh, your consciousness, um, you know, is there like a distinct <clears throat> demarcation between the conscious and the unconscious? You know, maybe they kind of bleed into one another. But at a certain point, you know, the uh, recollection is beyond personal memory. <clears throat> mm. So you're born into the world with certain, um, with certain um, inherent, um, inherent uh, capabilities, instincts. You, know, you could call them instincts or you could call them, um, you know, uh, memories, uh, recollections of how to do things. It's like a baby is born with uh, the the sucking reflex, right? The sucking. Um, if we did, if, if baby wasn't born with that sucking ability, it wouldn't be able to survive. Where'd that come from? Did he? Did the baby learn that? Yeah, right. The baby didn't learn how to suck at the nipple, right? But that would be an example, a very obvious example of um, of a kind of um, inborn, inherent. Uh, you know, uh, ability to do something. So there's a kind of, a, you know, a recollection, you could say, or it's in the genes, right? Or it's in the genes. So the genes might be a, might be a, a, a kind of a, an indication of a, a carrier of, uh, of, uh, of these uh, <clears throat> recollections or in, inherent uh, inborn uh, abilities. Right or potentialities, and th and that would be like maybe uh, you know uh, you know um, defining what the soul might be. You know the soul is um, just you know more than just uh, more than your personal memories that you learn in in life. Mm -hmm. You raise a, a number of uh, interesting thoughts there, and. It makes me think, you know, this distinction of the word between memory and recollection, you know, the distinction of those two words is something that Socrates talked about in Philobus. Uh, memory was something he said in Philobus that is pertains to the physical. So the physical body has a certain memory. Um, and that may be what uh, you were referring to in terms of those, you know, the reflexes of a newborn uh, has that sucking ability, you know, to to be able to survive. And maybe that's, maybe that's an example of a physical memory versus a recollection, which in Philobus, um, Socrates says belongs to the soul. Um, and it, 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 the recollection is in the soul and it's the, it's the logical sequence of events that occurred, you know, what, what caused this, what caused that, um, what action, what reactions follow what actions, you know, and I think that's more what he was talking about in terms of recollection. So there is that distinction between those two words in Philobus. And then certainly here, um, where we'll end up today's discussion is where they're talking about uh, the use of the equal in our, in our function of recollection. So he's saying that when we recall, we recall in sequences um, so if you mention, you know, a particular word like Plato, um, my very next thought would be of something that's either the same or different from Plato. 
so if you say Plato, I might then think of Socrates, or I might think of Aristotle, or I might think of dialogue, you know, so there's all this, this progression of, you know, sequential pro progression of recollection based on the triggering of equals and opposites for which we require knowledge of the equal. And that's what he said that we're born with. We're born with the knowledge of the equal, he says. We're not born with physical knowledge. You might be born maybe with physical memory, as you say, but not with, not with physical knowledge. Um, so I'm wondering, you know, is that a fair interpretation of, of what you've said and wondering what others think about that kind of idea of, uh, of what we're born with. This is something that uh, we can look at our next reading as well. And um, we'll go to Moshe. Well, um, just to be fair, um, just to be fair, uh, we're, we're, we're born not only with uh, the, um, uh, with the notion or idea of equal, but we're born also with all of those other, uh, the ideas of virtue and justice and truth and and, and things like that as well. So I, I don't want to limit it to, uh, and I know that you didn't mean to, to do that, but I just wanted to point out that, that all those other things uh, that are in dispute between people, you know, Socrates or Plato is going to hold that we're, we're born with those at the same time. Right. And that's that's something that we can uh, certainly look at as well. And, and he does offer in this part of our dialogue uh, a discussion about virtue and, and how that applies, you know. So is virtue something that uh, we exercise in constraining our bodily impulses? Uh, you know, he has a good example of uh, whether virtue whether somebody is brave, you know, in facing death because they they have overcome their fear of the disappearance of the body. Uh, and he says, no, that's not a definition of brave. Um, that's actually just we're reacting to bodily fear in that sense. And then he uses the same sort of uh, comparison to uh, moderation. You know, he says the body is licentious and if we think that we overcome the bodily, the, the body's impulses towards this licentiousness, that we that that makes us moderate, uh, he says, no, that's not what makes us moderate. It's it's this idea of wisdom uh, is is something that we imply we apply internally um, that doesn't react necessarily to what the body's doing because he says the body confuses things. So. Um, a very interesting question that you bring up with respect to virtue and, and how or, or what form that is present in us when we are born uh, is a very interesting question. Um, something I hadn't thought about specifically is what form that that is in. Is it fully formed? Uh, is it something that we we are born with a notion of it and that we form it uh, in, in greater detail over the course of our lives? So. We'll go yeah. to Steve and, 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 or sorry, did Moshe, did you have a follow-up on that? Or? Yeah, I just wanted okay. to follow up uh, at about 75C where Socrates says, and if we acquire this knowledge before we are born and we are born having the use of it, then we also know before we are born and at the instant of birth, not only the equal or the greater or the less, but all other ideas where we are not, uh, speaking only of equality, but of beauty, goodness, justice, holiness, and all of that which is stamped uh, with the name of essence in the dialectical process. 
Thank you. And that, that's actually, yeah, I appreciate your calling that into attention because that, that does make it clearer that, you know, what he's talking about, uh, that idea of those, those virtues that, that we are born with or the way that he expresses it. So thank you for that. Um, Steve and then Jose. A quick point of order. I don't think he's actually uh, proven to us yet that uh, we are born with all those things, that we are born with all the forms, but uh, something I think that needs to be established yet. I would agree. And I think, I think it does relate to this idea of the equal and, and, how, we, and how we understand and apply the, the equal. Um, so uh, we'll go to Jose. Yeah, something related to this, especially to the soul. I did a mental, how do you call it? A mental experiment some time ago. Eh? A thought experiment, yeah. A thought experiment. (laughs) And I said to myself, a population in the world is growing. Therefore, there are not enough souls to replenish the the new bodies. So where are these souls coming from? If you believe that, in fact, there is uh, the soul after death goes to the underworld, then uh, there will never be enough to cover all the growing population, right? Because there are going to be more newborns than there are more deaths. So I said, so where do these come from? And then a little bit, not convinced myself, but I thought about nowhere here says that the souls are different. That when I die, you die, etc. The soul separates from the body. The body decays, and the soul goes to the underworld. But it doesn't say that my soul is going to be different than James' soul or Steve's soul. So, what makes begs the question: If in fact, when we are born, if there is such a thing as a soul, it is a standard soul. To put it that way, they're all the same. To use the term of equality. And then it is your life that will make, you will make more of your, of the capabilities or potentialities of your soul, what you do. But all the souls are the same. There's only one in the underworld and they get replicated to everybody who is born because otherwise there won't be enough souls around to replicate. Anyway, it's a thought I had some time ago and this reminded me of that thought. It's a, it's a fascinating thought, actually, and, and uh, you know, thought experiments certainly lead to great discoveries over time, and I think that's a, it's a very interesting idea that, uh, you know, there could be a limit on the number of available souls, you know, and, and you know, did the number of people being born exceed the rate at which souls are, are being recycled through the system? Um, you know, so you raise the question whether a new soul coming into a newborn is like a mixture maybe of, of souls that have existed before. And I think you, you made the point, you know, like, is there eventually one soul from which all souls emerge? And I think these are critical questions that we can explore. I think certainly um, I'm trying to remember, I think it was in, in the Republic where I think Socrates stated that there was actually a finite number of souls I'd have to go back and find that reference, uh, but I think you you raise the important point here, and certainly something that we need to consider as we, you know, look at Socrates' soul about to depart and what's going to happen with it. Um, we'll go to Moshe and then Jose. Um, 
I, I, I have a real, this is just a personal note, but I have a real problem with the idea of a standard soul because uh, we, we would have the logical problem of the identity of indiscernibles. How w- would we know that this soul is supposed to go into that body? I mean, how do you, how do you choose them? And um, certainly God would not be able to know that um, unless you're Leibniz. And also in the Phaedrus, um, uh, Socrates talks about, or Plato talks about, how the individual souls claw and scratch at each other to get closer to the form. So they do take with them, at least in Platonic terms, uh, a, a certain knowledge which enables Plato to go on and differentiate between, you know, those souls that have the greater amount of knowledge from those that have less. You know, become, you become a, a philosopher, you become a politician, you become a, a dentist, and you know, and things like that. I, so I just. I just wanted to share with with I guess it was Jose G. What I see as a problem: the idea of a standard soul. And and certainly, uh, Moshe, you raised the the point not just in Phaedrus, but you know, in in a number of other dialogues where uh, Plato says that the every time the soul comes to life it has to pay some price for what it did in previous lives or, or reap the benefits of what it did in previous lives. Um, and so I think we saw in the Republic that, uh, you know, there is this thousand year cycle uh, for souls and, um, you know, the, the penalty that a bad person would pay or that a, a soul that had become bad would pay after it dies is 10 times worse than what it, than what it did to others in when it was embodied in life. Uh, and so definitely there is, it seems that there is this memory of, you know, soul's characteristics. Uh, but it is an interesting question, you know, do, are all souls completely separate from each other? Or is there some point at which all souls eventually connect? And I think maybe in this dialogue is one that he's saying that this point of the equal maybe is the point where all souls connect. Um, but I haven't really quite imagined what this point of the equal would look like. I mean, what kind of, how do we set that out in some sort of paradigm that we can understand? Uh, but it's a really interesting thought experiment. And, and you know, your, your response motion, I think, makes us think about how we can go in that sort of thought experiment. Um, we'll go to Jose J. Hi. Uh, yes, I was going to comment, but you commented that uh, in the Phaedrus, like uh, Plato says that uh, depending depending what you did in this life, this a thousand year cycle, etc. So not all the souls are equal. So they come and they reincarnate uh, according to what they did. Uh, another concept that uh, another idea that they have this. The thing of recollection and the immortality of the soul, I, I think this is essential for Plato, uh, the theory of forms. Because in the theory of forms, we have two worlds. We have the, the physical world, and we have the world of the ideas or the, or the forms. And they are different, different worlds. So now, what is the only... So if we are in this world, how can we grasp the concepts, the ideas that they have in the other world. There is no connection, there is no way. So now, Plato, to uh, 
this uh, to um, to resolve this problem, well, he proposed that uh, that the the soul is immortal and the soul lives in the in the forms world and comes to the real world to the to the physical world. So the soul is the connection between these two, and how he brings the forms to the to the physical world is this soul. He brings this knowledge. Because they live there, the soul they live in the forms, so they bring to the physical world. They live all, all this form knowledge, but they forget. He said they, they forget in the at birth, and it, it's only like a, a little idea. So, so the way that you can that you can learn, you can uh, kind of you never learn the forms. You recollect. So this is the whole point. This is very essential in his theory of forms. This recollection and the and the way that he says that the, the souls they live in the in the fourth world and they come back to earth, etc. Hmm. Really good way that you explain that, I think, Jose. You know, this idea of you don't learn the forms, you recollect the forms, and maybe that's where we'll kind of arrive in an understanding at the end of today's discussion. Um, and certainly you pointed out the difference between the physical and the uh and the world that or the realm that the the soul lives in which is not physical i mean the physical realm is visible um the realm that the soul lives in is invisible and we'll see this in our next session uh where we'll look at the next part of Fido, where they make that distinction between the visible and the invisible and they make it in the context of the composites and, and the non-composites and the composites uh are the, the physical uh, elements in the universe and the non-composites are those things that exist in the invisible universe and that would include the soul the non-composites uh socrates will say are those things which are not broken up and they're not dispersed on death they exist forever whereas the composites uh come and go and the composites are physical so it's an interesting distinction that you made and certainly i think actually i've got a slide here on on this idea of physical knowledge, and maybe we can take a look at that before I do the next reading. Um, we'll go to Bill, though. Bill? Okay, uh, you know, what, what came to mind was, um, you know, how does our society improve in terms of, you know, the uh, the care we take for one another, the um, improvements in uh, in our in our sensitivity to one another. And I think it's because of people who came before us. They, they've set the stage for, for society to grow. And in that sense, their soul lives on. Mm -hmm. Good question. And it's, uh, you know, how do, we, how do we advance? How do we learn from uh, the good things that people in the past experienced? How, how do we learn from the bad things that happened in the past? And uh, and certainly the the actions of one soul can resonate through time, I think is is a, I think uh, you know what you were saying it it's something that's very very key for us to understand is that when you when the body dies, memory or recollection of of it uh, or or what the what the animating force in it did uh, lives on. So you know that is certainly I don't think there would be much dispute about that, but uh, I think certainly the the way that memories can be distorted is something that's uh, very problematic and something that 
Socrates talks about a lot in this section of the Phaedo that we're reading today, you know, how the body, how the body can confuse the soul. Um, and so um, I just wanted actually to go to this covered cover page on the notes that I've posted on the shared drive. And this is this, uh, I'm actually very happy to find this, uh, this image. It's uh, for those who can't see the screen, it's an image of a, of a running body. So it's you know, basically given the outline of the, of the body and it's shown it running forward in, in motion. Uh, the front part of the body is defined. So you, you can see it's a clearly defined body, but the back part of the body is, is you know, uh, dissipating into these pixels uh, as, as the body runs. So as the body runs forward, the front part of the body is defined, but the back part of the body is disappearing. It's kind of almost, to me, it's a little bit of an illustration of the phenomenon in physics of entropy. You know, so the front part of the body is is well ordered, and entropy is maximum disorder, and that's what's happening in the in the back part of the body. So, if you think about time, you know the front part of the body is headed towards the future. The back part of the body is headed to the past, and right in the middle is the present. And you know, it's this it's this problem with our knowledge of physics. Um, the what I talked about in the introduction, the uh, uncertainty principle that physicist Werner Heisenberg. Uh, first defined, and then mathematician Hermann Weyl uh, set it out in mathematical form. So here I've got the mathematical form of the uncertainty principle on the screen. I've rewritten uh, a couple of the the terms, in, or I've expanded a couple of the terms, you know. And so basically, the uncertainty principle says that the the more you know of an object's position in the present, you know, and position would be would consist of four points, right? There'd be length, width, and depth. So that would be your your spatial position, and then one point for your temporal position. So the more you know of those four points at in 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 the present about the position of a physical object. The less you know about its momentum, which is its mass times its its velocity, and velocity is speed over time in a particular direction in a particular vector. So the mathematical form of it is the standard deviation of position, or position is denoted by x, multiplied by the standard deviation of momentum, which is this simple p is used for momentum, is greater than or equal to. And there, there's this inequality that we have in physics. So we don't have this idea of the equal. There's this inequality. It could be either greater than or equal to. We don't know which. Um, and, you know, it uses this, this term on the right-hand side of this expression. Uh, it's greater than or equal to uh, the Planck constant, which is denoted by H. And it's this, the Planck constant is the, the smallest uh, thing in the universe. It's the smallest physical thing in the universe. It's this crazy small uh, 10 to the negative 34, I think it is. It's the smallest uh, distance, the smallest mass, uh, the smallest length. The smallest anything in the universe. And so you, you take that, you divide it by two pi, and then you further divide it by two. Um, and so we've got this inequality when we compare to the very smallest thing in the universe. And when I look at this expression, I think of the universe as the sum of all probabilities. And I think of this Planck constant uh, as the minimum, minimum probability, at least the minimum probability in physics. Uh, and so we have this problem with our knowledge of physics. It will never be complete because the more you know 
of an object's position, the less you know about its momentum and vice versa. The more you, mo the more you know about its momentum, the less you know about its position. And I think this, this diagram or this drawing, uh, this pixelated drawing kind of really illustrates the, the idea of the uncertainty principle. Um, and so that's our problem with knowledge of physics. And then that's, I think, the, the whole idea behind what Plato is talking about in terms of, you know, the, the soul having to apply reason and to understand things like the equal, you know, because we see in our knowledge of physics, this inequality, you know, that, that position times momentum can be either equal to or greater than uh, the Planck constant divided by two pi and further divided by two. So I just wanted to make that point about, you know, this knowledge of physics. And I think the, the importance of um, understanding, I think this kind of, um, this uncertainty of our knowledge is something that kind of permeates uh, Plato's works. You know, we saw in the Republic, we see here as well, uh, you know, and that's that role of the soul is to kind of navigate this uncertainty. Um, so maybe with that, I just, I just wanted to point that out. Um, and this maybe go then to this reading, which I can do here. This, this is from 72A to D. And uh, uh, I think it was Moshe who mentioned Phaedrus. Uh, there's actually a, a connection I've made here to Phaedrus in this reading. So I'll just, maybe I'll just do this reading here and then I'll make the connection to Phaedrus. So this is where Socrates says, it is agreed between us then that the living come from the dead in this way, no less than the, than the dead from the living. And if that is so, it seems to be sufficient proof that the souls of the dead must be somewhere whence they can come back again. Consider in this way, Cedis, that, as I think, we were not wrong to agree. If the two processes of becoming did not always balance each other, and if they were going round in a circle, but generation proceeded from one point to its opposite in a straight line, and it did not turn back again to the other opposite or take any turning, do you realize that all things would ultimately be in the same state, be affected in the same way, and cease to become? So to become is... I think Plato's way of saying, you know, to to operate in the present, because the present is the state of becoming or the state of coming to be. He goes on further to say, it is not hard to understand what I mean. If, for example, there was such a process as going to sleep, but no corresponding process of waking up, you realize that in the end, everything would show the story of endymion to have no meaning. And just to break there, endymion was granted eternal rest by Zeus. So this story of having eternal rest would have no meaning. There would be no point to it because everything would have the same experience as he and be asleep. And if everything were combined and nothing separated, the saying of Anaxagoras would be true, that all things were mixed together. And in that, I guess he's saying that there would be no difference between things. And so he concludes by saying, in the same way, my dear Cedis, if everything that partakes of life were to die and remain in that state and not come to life again, would not everything ultimately have to be dead and nothing alive? Even if the living come from some other source and all that lived died, how could all things avoid being absorbed in death? Um, and it's that word source that's used here that I connected to Phaedrus, um, Phaedrus 245c to 246c, uh, Socrates said, in fact, this self-mover talking about, you know, I guess the, the, the soul or the, you know, the force of animation, the self-mover is also the source and spring of motion in everything else that moves, and, is, and a source has no beginning. 
That is because anything that has a beginning comes from some source. But there is no source for this, since a source that got its start from something else would no longer be the source. And since it cannot have a beginning, then necessarily it cannot be destroyed. That is because if a source were destroyed, it could never get started again from anything else, and nothing else could get started from it. That is, if everything gets started from a source. This, then, is why a self-mover is a source of motion. And that is incapable of being destroyed or starting up. Otherwise, all heaven and everything that has been started up would collapse, come to a stop, and never have cause to start moving again. Um, so that was the footnote that I added to this word source in 72A to D. And so there's particular logic in there. And I'm just wondering what everyone thinks about this logic, uh, this, this idea that things... Uh, come to be in this this two processes. So you you come to be from one opposite to the other, and then from that back to the back to the first opposite, or maybe contraries. If we use the the term that uh, Moshe raised at the beginning, uh, and this idea that they have to balance each other. And the word balance here means reaching an equal, right? So they, you can't have one opposite or one contrary prevailing over the other. Um, and then this, again, this idea of source, you know, what is, if, if something is the source, it cannot have another source. There can only be one source. Um, so just, you know, what, what are, what are your thoughts about the logic that he's presenting here? You know, this idea that if this, these two processes ever stopped, everything would just cease to become, there would be no present. Um, Moshe, your thoughts? Well, um, you bring up a lot of interesting things. I mean, to go back to your idea uh, expressed by the picture that you had, and you used the word entropy. Um, the um, the paragraph, the first paragraph that we read, uh, anticipates uh, you know a modern physical view that entropy uh, will um, you know, ultimately, the universe will will simply stop heating itself up, and it will just start to become disordered, and everything will will simply evaporate. Okay, so if 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 the second law of thermodynamics is true, and everything just does continue to go into, um, you know, a um, uh, into a into a state of chaos, uh, then ultimately, what we will have you know, it, it would be as if everything ceased to become, okay? So that that was a very interesting observation. I mean, I, I think Plato's, you know, right on with, with that. On the other hand, we do have something like, like I'll call it for lack of a better term, it's descriptive, but, uh, but not particularly meaningful, um, is the concept of life, or maybe it's meaningful, but not particularly descriptive. Because uh, in order to be able to have life, uh, you've got to be able to have energy. You've got to be able to have self-replication. You've got to have, have duplication. You have to be able to perform, uh, you know, perform work. And all of these things are necessary in the world of becoming. So in the, um, in the physical world, we have something that is, is uh, uh, actually, what's the word for it? It, it, it's contra it, it's contra entropy okay it's it's something that that actually resists the um, the um, 
physical process of, of losing its, its system, of, of, of going into a state of chaos, a state of, of, of disorganization. So to the extent that, that the world, whatever that is, is living, we will constantly have becoming. But if the physical universe itself um, does, uh, follows the laws of thermodynamics, then ultimately it will overcome even living and everything will just go into a state of, of non-becoming. So that's what I take as interesting about, um, you know, about that, that paragraph that you had there and also tying that into your idea of the soul being the, 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 the self-mover, um, uh, the, the, the self-moving mover, um, which is something that is constantly, to the best of its ability, self-replicating and, and um, you know, continuing to, it, it's, it's alive and, and continuing to become. Thank you. And I, I really like the way that you um, said that we have this power to resist entropy. So if the physical universe, uh, you know, I think scientists agree that entropy is what happens left to its own, um, we, the physical universe goes from a state of order uh, to a max state of maximum disorder, and that's entropy. And you know, maximum disorder is just there's no organization of anything, there's no shape, there's no form of anything. All, all points just disperse to nothingness. Um, but as you said, we have this power that this self mover inside us has this power to resist entropy, and I really like that. That's uh, um. I think that's a good way of, of putting it and thinking about it. And I hadn't really thought about that power of resistance uh, before in that way. So I think that's uh, that that's interesting. And that, that ties, you know, I think to this quote from Phaedrus from 245C to 246C. Um, and, you know, again, this, this, you know, this, this problem that we would have if the soul were to stop, how would it ever get started again? Um, you know, if, if it just blows off into the wind, um, as CB's in particular fears in this dialogue, um, you know, how is the soul ever going to get started again? You know, what, what, what's going to arrive in the newborn? Um, so let's, I mean, maybe let's get into this question. Like, do we think this, if, if we think the soul dies with the body, then how does a soul come to being? Um, so maybe that's the question that we need to confront at this point. Um, your thoughts, J.K.? Yeah, this uh, idea of entropy is that it's, it's agreed upon in science that that's there's that there's that um, there's a kind of uh, this uh, you know second law of thermodynamics uh, leads to this uh, ultimate uh, dissolution, right? Um, um, but is that you know is that uh, philosophically you know? Um, Agreed upon that that's the that's a kind of like a one way street um, because you mentioned there's just you know what is the counter to entropy I mean in the perhaps that's that should be um, you know entertained as well that uh, that there is this um, you know other force that counters the entropy um, that um, you know that brings about order and. Um, it's like, uh, you know, um, you mentioned that there's a balance uh, in this passage. That, um, that does that mean that, like, a, 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 the world we're living in, if there are, you know, too many, 
too many souls here. Is it going to counterbalance that with, uh, you know, with the more deaths, more destruction, in order to counterbalance the, the overpopulation of, of souls? Because it seems like we're heading towards that kind of <laughs> precipice of um, of uh, maybe global collapse, right, of sorts, and and maybe uh, we we need to start over again or something, or it's a it's a it's a counterbalancing of it's a way of balancing out the, um, you know, and bringing us back to what is, what is normal because we, we have 7 billion people in my earth. Or, and what's really comfortable, what's qu comfortable is around three, 3 billion people. And there's just not enough uh, resources to, uh, <clears throat> to feed everyone, right? At this, and, and without, uh, without major, causing major problems in pollution and uh, deprivation and so forth. Yeah. Yeah, the idea of, of uh, you know, balancing the numbers of souls, I guess, you know, when we're, I think it's actually closer to 8 billion souls now on, on planet Earth. And so, you know, is there some point where that balance gets exceeded? Um, certainly, I think it was in the Critias where uh, they start off by talking about these cyclic, um, you know, destruction events and, you know, whether we're headed for one or not is is anybody's guess. But um, you know, maybe with the, the right amount of knowledge, we can, you know, find an appropriate balance and, and save ourselves. Uh, but that would seem to be a task of the soul then to find that, that path to, to restore that balance. Um, but when I see the word balance here in 72A, you know, this idea of balancing each other, um, you know, it, it's, it's this constant process of generation so you, you can't let the generator ever stop. The generator always has to find that balance because if it tips too much one way or the other, then there'll be too much or too little. And either way, we'll wind up in some sort of destruction, right? So I think it's always that, that point of balance, which, you know, as I said in the introduction, you know, if you think of the equal as the point of no difference, uh, maybe that point of no difference is actually the most important point in this physical universe, which consists of just infinite numbers of differences. Um, so lots to think about in this, I think. Um, Steve, your thoughts. Um, my understanding of uh, second law, third world dynamics about entropy is that entropy or systems dissipate, heat or motion in a closed uh, system. So you, if you take the universe as a whole, it's a closed system. But if you take the earth and life on earth, it's not a closed system. <clears throat> we It's not like a life is uh, anti-entropy. It's it's happening, in, you know, like the life on earth is coming because we're getting energy from the sun. Um, so it'd be like the example that I've heard used is like a, a teenager's room could be organized. If the parent comes in and organizes the rooms, but after a while, that there's only really that one, one, you know, a few states where it could be organized, but then there could be multiple states of disorganization. And over time, you know, left without any uh, energy put in from the outside it would dissipate into, uh, you know, ent entropy or disorganization per se. So as, but to your uh, earlier question about the, uh, 
where does this uh, life come from? And one of the ways that I've heard it described as in, in just like the teenager's room, there's clumpiness in the universe. There's <clears throat> in this total system of the universe, there's parts where things are, you know, there's a randomization. And during that randomization, certain parts are clumped together. So you have, um, so you can have the, the source. One explanation I heard is that uh, what you could say is the, let's say the rationale for how life came to be is by uh, randomness in conditions. So just like you have, um, if, if, if you have a, uh, a system that is where there's energy that's closer together due to whatever fluctuations of that randomness, you know, the dust from, you know, the Big Bang forming into nebulas, forming into stars, et cetera, forming into the earth. So there's all of these uh, random, these occurrences that are caused by the physical laws of attraction and gravity. But the, eventually the trend is towards um, dissolution of all that. Uh, not non-existence, but as uh, the non-becoming as, as was stated earlier. So that was my two cents. And, and uh, yeah, the, the use of the word randomness, Steve, I think is it's an interesting one that you know makes me think again about uh, probabilities that I mentioned with respect to the Planck constant. You know, if I I see the Planck constant as a minimum probability, and uh, in the physical universe, and uh, you know, if you if you if there are these randomness, uh, you know, areas in the universe, you know, as you said, the, the clumpiness. You know, I guess you could consider maybe the existence of a, of a planet in the middle of interstellar space to be kind of clumpiness, or not in interstellar space, but in a solar system to be an evidence of, to be an example of clumpiness, maybe. Uh, and that's where more probabilities have occurred than, uh, you know, in contrast to interstellar state, interstellar space where there is no clumpiness. Um, so uh, it's, it's, uh, an interesting thought to think, you know, what what is the end of the universe if there is an end of the universe? I think some people posit the idea of the big freeze, which is just, you know, if you take the second law of thermodynamics to its natural conclusion, everything just reaches maximum disorder and then nothing happens. The present disappears at that point in the big freeze. There is no present. There's just there's just past. Um, but the, then, you know, the question is, well, how would would such a system have come to be like how would time come to be in that way uh you know what started time going in the first place what started it flowing in the first place if, if time is this difference between past and future you know what we call the present um you know then then does the present always have to exist or is the present doomed to end in this sort of big freeze um kind of like you know it gives me some feeling of agency maybe to think as as moshe said that we have the power to resist this sort of entropy um, and, and make change and cause certain orders to come into being. And I guess it's a question then whether the power of the soul, whether it's just souls on this planet or whether there's souls elsewhere in the universe, is the power of the soul sufficient to overcome the natural tendency of all of physics to entropy? Um, 
that would be an interesting thought experiment. Could the soul, could the, the power of the soul become so powerful as to resist all of entropy? Uh, I don't know if anybody wants to engage in that thought experiment. Could, could I uh, comment on that? Yeah. So the, if we go back to the first law of thermodynamics is that energy cannot be created or destroyed. So, the, you know, the, the idea that there's a soul power that could create, you know, defeat something um, that there seems to be a problem with the logic there, but just, just based on, on that, if it can't be created, then or destroyed, how could there, you know, be a, you know, and again, it's, I think with the entropy, it's within a closed system. If, you know, when we're looking at a soul, it's only functioning on the earth because it's in a, it's getting energy from outside from the sun. Good points to, to highlight. I think that energy cannot be created or destroyed and, Maybe that's something that we want to consider of uh, consider in terms of the soul. You know, if you think of the soul as some sort of energy, um, then does that support the view that the soul can't be destroyed? Um, certainly, I think when Socrates always makes this distinction between being and becoming, uh, being, he says, is always eternal, and you cannot add to or subtract from that which is eternal because that which is eternal just always is. It's always the same. So you can never add to or subtract from it. Um, and, you know, but becoming is that state of differences. Uh, you know, it's, it's a state of different levels of order and different le levels of disorder. And yeah. And then, so, you know, as you say, you know, entropy, if it applies to a closed system, well then is the universe a closed system or does it continually regenerate? And I think these, you know, these words from 72a to d talk about this need of continuous regeneration. And you know, Plato was a geometer, and he used this term in a circle in in the 70 around 72b, uh, as if it's going around in a circle. And you know, maybe we can consider some geometry of circles uh as maybe not necessarily a closed system um when you think of the ratio of the circumference to the diameter there is no end to that ratio there's no beginning to a circle there's no end to a circle and there's no end to the ratio of circumference to diameter so maybe is that a little bit of a geometric clue here that he's giving to a universe that we now know is geometric and this is einstein's field equations established without a doubt that the universe is geometric um, but then we've got these funny things like, you know, when, when they look back in the telescopes and they see the cosmic microwave background, which is thought to be uh, the, the kind of barrier that you can't see beyond, which exists in the first 300,000 years of the universe. Um, they say that's actually remarkably uniform, remarkably, um, like there's no clumpiness in that. Um, so we've got this kind of uniform background to the universe, and then we've got these clumpy areas, such as what we live in. Uh, some interesting thoughts. Um, so thanks for that, Steve. And we'll go to JK. Yeah, aren't we talking about the difference between um, science and philosophy? And because uh, science is you know, positing this uh, these laws of you know thermodynamics, um, <clears throat> entropy, and so forth. And this, this is all all in terms of science, uh, physical science theory, and um, and. Philosophy is talking more, uh, talking more about the, you know, uh, what, what is beyond the physical, right? 
what is beyond science or inclusive of science. And that, um, you know, um, you know, what is opposed to entropy might be that there's kind of uh, these uh, spiritual ideas, you know, the soul and so forth that, you know, Plato is talking about and other philosophers talk about. Particularly more recently is uh, the, uh, the philosopher named uh, Bergson, who was uh, in dispute with uh, Einstein's. I think they even had a a a, a meeting where they they uh, they argued about uh, their opposing theories, and of course Einstein took the took the scientific physical you know uh, explanations uh, <clears throat> as being the correct one, and then not Bergson, um, you know. Uh, was uh, took the other side, um, and Einstein became more popular after that. But um, but Bergson's position is is in terms of this more philosophical spiritual view of uh, duration and the elan vital, which is like the soul, you know, um, in uh, in life. Uh, whereas he talked, he also understood. He was also a scientist. He understood what the scientific position was and he referred to it as mechanical and and radically finalist finalistic and uh, and so that's a, just a way of talking about it. the science talks about things in the in terms of physical uh, uh, you know uh, explanations and 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 you come to this kind of uh, you know, this idea of entropy but um, you know that's just that's one that's just one the physicalist scientific point of view, as opposed to I think Plato's talking more about the the, the, the uh, you know metaphysical uh, position here. Interesting. I'll, I'll have to look up Rousseau and um, you know certainly I think Einstein demonstrated a fair bit of philosophy in a number of things that he said, and it's a good point. You know, how do we distinguish between philosophy and science? You know, I think that distinction is maybe a more modern one, uh, and that philosophy maybe can be considered a science itself. Maybe philosophy is the science of science. Uh, I don't know, uh, but something that we can consider. You know, that there is some knowledge out there beyond knowledge of just the physical. Uh, you know, because the knowledge of the physical is subject to the uncertainty principle, and so. What what is it? What what kind of science deals with uncertainty? Um, certainly, I think mathematics deals with that. Uh, geometry deals with it, uh, and certainly the kind of discussions that we're having today deal with it. So that's more in the realm of the soul, I would say. So good, good, good thoughts and good points. And and we'll go to Johnny. I think I missed your hand earlier, so apologies for that. No worries, but. Um... The last sentence in the uh, second paragraph really stands out to me. Uh, it's, even if the living come from some other source and all that lived died, how could all things avoid being absorbed in death? And my initial reaction to that was, was they can't. And I'm coming at it from, from the physical sense. In the physical world, everything that's here is not going to be here at some point in time. And this entire argument seems to be based on the fact that there's an assumption that there's a fixed number of souls. Um, we don't know the laws of the world of form, so why would we assume, or why would Socrates assume that there's only a fixed number of souls? 
if we're thinking about life, we can't separate it from the physical world. So we know how the physical world operates. We can make theories. We can observe things with our with our senses, but the the world of forms is completely out of our grasp. So I think if you take away that assumption that there's only a fixed number of souls, you get a completely different conversation. Interesting. And let's let's look for that um, let's look for that idea of the fixed number of souls and see if that's something that can be supported and and see if that's something that Socrates says is precise or changes over time. Um, an interesting thought. Uh, Moshe. Okay. To JK's point, uh, at, at this particular um, time in intellectual history, uh, there was no distinction between philosophy and physics. Uh, philosophy at that time uh, even up to the time of when Newton wrote his Principia, he wrote his Principia of natural philosophy. Uh, so, so uh, like James said, this distinction or a, a, a firm distinction between um, between philosophy and physics is is a relatively uh, recent phenomenon. Uh, the other thing that I wanted to say, going back to this entry entropy and a point that I can't remember who made it about um, um, about clumpiness, okay? Uh, if, if you remember Lucretius, uh, the atomist, uh, had all these different atoms and uh, they had different properties. You know, some of them had, you know, hooks and some of them had other things, uh, you know, that would enable them to interact uh, in a way. But they were, in Lucretius, they were all going in a straight line. I presume that they were all going uh, down, but we have physical. Um, we, we do have a physical world because some of the some of the atoms would swerve off course, and you know they would collide and they would clump. Okay, and so uh, it introduces the idea into the into the existence of the physical world of uh, of randomness and you know this clumpiness of the atoms you know coming together or what you had referred to earlier as as composites. Okay. Um, so that's an, that's a very ancient idea and it's, it, you know, people certainly have not, you know, have that idea has not been lost on people in the present. The last thing that I wanted to observe, there are two things, but I think I'll only get to one of them is this idea of the first and second laws of thermodynamics. Um, you know, the first law saying that the, you know, energy can neither be created nor destroyed. And the second law saying that everything you know that entropy is a is a physical law of the universe, and everything will simply get into. I think you called it a zero state or frozen state or something like that. Uh, I said that the universe, you know, all matter simply evaporates. Uh, some of the quantum physicists like to talk use the metaphor of how something, uh, how a, a photon um, comes into uh, comes becomes a particle as opposed to a wave. And they, they talk about they talk about the the wave collapsing, okay, and that the wave collapses in a certain way due to some sort of interference, which is usually usually observation. But putting that aside, uh, assuming that there's no observation, but there is, you know, these waves do uh, collapse uh, uh, occasionally, uh, like the Lucretian atom that swerves out of the way. 
the the energy in the universe could be maintained, but all but the second law of thermodynamics could be true at the same time because the waves simply stop collapsing, and everything just becomes a steady state. It's just um, you know all the energy's there, but you know nobody's waving into each other. We're not getting to use the metaphor, non-scientific metaphor. We're not getting clumpiness anymore. Um, uh, I would like to comment on the, the finite number of souls and the infinite number of souls. Um, Plato, at, at this particular point, I don't know if we need to have a, an infinite number of souls. We could just have a very large, finite number of souls and still have you know, uh, you know, people coming around. Uh, or it might be the case that, that souls don't have to be recycled, that you simply get a soul when you get the proper accumulation of matter together to create uh, uh, to create uh, a sentient entity like human beings, a, a, a sentient creature, and uh, to beg the question completely, consciousness might simply be a very high form of sentience. You know, it 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 it, it could be that it's not a, it's not different than sentience. It's just you know a higher a higher order of it. But that's a, a you know a separate question. Uh, if, if if you don't need to recycle souls, all you need to do is keep pumping out people, and you're going to keep pumping out pump, pumping out souls. Uh, on the other hand, just to make a slightly facetious point, you know, suppose there are are only three billion souls in the universe, and we've got, got eight billion people on the on the in the world, then we've got uh, we've got um, five billion zombies, uh, and uh, given the you know, at least the uh, political state in the United States, it might be true that we've got more zombies here than they have in other parts of the world. That's all I have to say. That's last part was facetious. <laughs> Thank you. I, I won't make any editorial comment on that, but uh, we can all have our, our thoughts on it. But uh, you, you have some definitely fascinating perspectives there. I, I like that, you know, the, the reference to the quantum wave collapse and, you know, this this observer effect that, uh, you know, that they know in physics, you know, if you observe a beam coming through two slits, uh, that it's scattered pattern when it arrives on the wall or whatever is set up on the opposite side of the two slits, slits the scatter pattern is different than if you don't observe it. And I think that highlights the existence of two separate things in the universe. There is the observer, and which is the soul, and there is a physically observed which is the physical, uh, and those kind of need to be kept separate. You know, one the observer is observing the, the physics, which are which is the observed. Um, and you know, is it in fact going to be this this state where at some point the observer just disappears and that there will be no longer any difference? You know, that would be the uh, the, the state at which everything is equal and there is no longer a difference. Uh, and I guess that's that's the point at which this generation that's, you know, being talked about, this continuous generation that's being talked about in 72A to D would stop. Uh, but that would seem rather um, not a good outcome for all of our souls eventually. Um, but yeah, let's, let's uh, consider that. I think it certainly uh, gave you some, some interesting perspectives to, to think about. Um, we'll go to JK and then Jose. Yeah, I want to address this uh, notion of um, the sameness of souls or the differences among souls. And um, I think of it in terms of like snowflakes. There's no two snowflakes that are, that are alike. 
So, so the uh, snowflakes coming through the atmosphere, they they automatically, you know, um, um, take on a certain shape, you know, certain form, and um, and but they merge, you know, melt and merge into the into uh, snow and so forth. The snow becomes water. So there's a certain kind of, um, you know, um, you know, um, existence there of the snowflakes. You could call them beings, right? And and they're each one is different. So by the same token, uh, why couldn't there be an infinite number of souls, right? And not, none of them are the same, and they go back to where they came from, you know, right? On the other hand, uh, we assume that uh, we're the only human beings or the only ones who have souls. Uh, why couldn't, you know, um, you know, things in the world, the other things in the world, leaves, trees, and so forth, animals, other, you know, particles have, have some kind of, some sense of, uh, of what we think of as souls. I mean, we don't know. We don't know what they are. We don't really understand, you know, we're a limited consciousness of, uh, uh, within our, you know, within each of us, that we have a limited understanding of what those things are, the things in themselves, like conscious, though, we are the, you know, they're part of the new that we don't really know. We can't know the thing in itself. We only know the appearance of them. So we assume a lot that we, we're the only ones who have souls. And in that sense, um, you know, the soul might be just defined by whatever is there that's in the world um, and each each entity has some sense of a soul because they're in the, in relation with everything else or it's just like we're in relation to everything else perhaps a soul is just a uh, defined as not individual but it's just a relationship with uh with uh, our environment with uh with uh with the world that we were in um you know perhaps a soul is just like uh like that, um, the uh, the, uh, the the sense of the world that we're that we have uh, of ourselves, and so it's like, it comes down to the question of you know what is a self, you know is it just a entity with a, a kind of image of ourselves within each individual mind or or brain or whatever? No, I think it's it's more than that. That's uh, I mean you know what what would you be without the without the environment the milieu that you're in. Right, you, there's no individual that's separate from the world, right? So I, I think the soul maybe is a, is a kind of a uh, defined in a very limited way. In that sense, you know, there is no um, limitation to what the to how many souls there are and what the soul is and so forth. Uh, we we really don't know exactly, but I think. Uh, you know, Socrates and in, in, in these Platonic dialogues are giving us a kind of a, a, a hint at what the soul might might be. You know, yeah. The the um, I think you made a number of really interesting points there. You know, you mentioned the snowflakes, and that makes me think of uh, fractal geometry. You know, where a fractal just continues to propagate um, according to a particular pattern, but the fractal can move around and combine with itself. And there can be differences in sizes and magnitudes in the fractal. And so that's an interesting connection that just occurred to me as we were talking about the snowflakes, because uh, there is that certain similarity in the snowflake formation. Um, you said you can't know the thing in itself. And so that 
you know, like, can the soul know itself? Uh, can it know itself by looking at itself? Or does it have to know itself by looking at its reflection in others? Uh, an interesting idea there. And then the idea of, you know, as a soul defined by its necessary relationship uh, with the physical world around it. Uh, so I think there's a number of really interesting thoughts there that uh, that we can pick up on and certainly think about as we progress in our next two sessions with, with Fido. I think next session, I'll, I'll mention at the end as well, next session, I thought we would go up to 98B. And then the following session, I thought we would uh, finish the the rest of the pedo. So we've got two more sessions to consider. I think those points. Um, we'll go to Jose G. Yes, uh, this comment is uh, half serious and half levity. But when Mosh was talking about the uh, the souls and uh, three billion souls and eight billion population, therefore a deficit of 5 billion, therefore they may be zombies. I thought about another hypothesis that says, well, maybe they are repetitive souls out there. In other words, they reuse the inventory and therefore that's where the term soulmate comes from. Some, <laughs> some, my soul has been duplicated somewhere and somewhere in some part of the world, there will be an individual with a soul identical to mine, because we got a deficit of souls. Anyway, that's all I wanted to mention. Thanks. And um, actually, yeah, you mentioned soulmate, and that makes me think of a symposium, I guess, where they talked about how we are kind of divided in two, and we're always looking for our other, our other half. Uh, it's an interesting thought that we can explore in this context of you know, is there a finance, a finite uh, number of souls? Um, it's, did you want to follow up on that, Jose? Or, or okay, or we'll go to uh, Steve. Um, one point is that um, Socrates is is making the assumption there is a soul, so the discussion is really about the mortality of the soul. So I don't think it's uh, it's the idea that there is a soul is is uh, I believe that would be a dualistic point of view. And, um, you know, I don't think it's necessarily in the scope of the discussion about whether that part of it is uh, true. But, um, you know, the point that JK made, that's uh, there's the name uh, escapes me, but there is a field of thought that all, all things, not just living things, all things have a essence or a presence, let's say, or just call it a soul. So there is that also, that that view. But, um, you know, a lot of the uh, thoughts current is a more towards a non-dualist point of view. So just for framing um, the discussion as a dualistic uh, uh, discussion. Hmm. Well, thank you for that perspective. And, and maybe that could just lead us to consider this um, this short part here at uh, 64, uh, 64C that I've highlighted on the screen. And that's where Socrates makes the, the statement or asks the question, you know, do we believe that there is such a thing as death? And he says, is it, is it anything else than the separation of the soul from the body? Do we believe that death is this, namely that the body comes to be separated by itself apart from the soul and that the soul comes to be separated 
by itself apart from the body. Is death anything else than this? Um, and you know that that we you know set this, the, these two distinct things: the body, the, the physical existence, and the soul is separated by itself. Uh, and, and by itself, meaning doesn't require any other thing to sustain it. That the body that that it occupied is now gone, but the soul sustains itself. Um, and you know, I, I thought that's you know that's the question. I think really that that you know that needs to be addressed, or, or that we need to have some view on on this. Whether whether we accept this idea, the soul can exist without the the body, uh, either before birth or after death, uh, and they, and they wind up um, at the end of today's reading concluding that it can exist without the body before birth. Uh, but CBs continues to have doubts that it can exist after death. So, what happens in this interim period? Uh, and and that's will occupy the rest of the of the dialogue, where they go on to provide some proof of that. But um, you know that this this separate you know this this dual existence of soul and body separate from each other, and this idea that death is nothing other than separation of the soul from the body. It was an interesting way to portray death, uh, certainly as Socrates is about to go to his own death, and he's actually quite happy about this separation, um, because as he says in the next part that I've got highlighted from 66E to 67B, uh, you know, he says that the, the body just uh, provides impure amounts of, or impure levels of knowledge. Uh, the body's providing all of this data that just confuses the soul. And so the soul, when it separates from the body, can attain this, this, um, this state of perfect knowledge that is not confused by all of this contradictory data that the, that the body delivers to it. Uh, Bill, what are your thoughts? Well, I, I have never seen the evidence of the soul. So uh, that doesn't mean it doesn't exist. Just because I haven't seen it, um, you know, I'm a, I'm a scientist, so I, I, I traditionally viewed the soul as something that was in a fantasy land. But uh, that doesn't mean it doesn't exist. Just because we don't know it in the physical world doesn't mean it doesn't exist. However, I I, sen I seem to the sense I have of soul is that you know when the body dies, it does leave the knowledge that has been accumulated by that body and the experiences, and it does get disseminated into our society, into the world somehow, and leaves it behind. So in that sense, I see the soul as being not, not something ephemeral, but uh, something actually practical, something physical, some transfer of knowledge and experience. And, and you pointed out, Bill, I think, you know, that the soul you know, or the, call it the soul or call it the animating force or something, you know, your, anima your animating force just affected me with what you just said. And so I think, you, as you said, it, it's like an ex a transfer of information or a transfer of knowledge. And, um, you know, I think one of the things about the universe that's been proven is that it, it operates under a law of conservation of information. And so if we think of the soul as information, you know, like I, I've got my animating force and my soul as a particular set of information. Um, you know, I, I'd like to think that that is in fact conserved. And as you said, Bill, it can go on to affect people 
after my body is gone, you know, so whether you can see the soul, I mean, the soul is something that's not physical, so it couldn't be seen because you can only see physical things. So I think this is the problem that, you know, we, we're always looking for evidence of what we can see and we, we believe in only what we can see. We don't believe in the unseen, but as we'll see in the next part of the dialogue that we'll look at, you know, there, you know, we can divide the universe into two realms. There's a physical visible realm and there's the invisible realm and the soul is part of the invisible. And so how do you prove the invisible? Well, that's the real challenge. Uh, but as you said, it can definitely have an effect on us. So, um, and, and that effect lasts beyond the, the existence of the physical body. And so maybe that's evidence, you know, of that effect. If it's evidence maybe of the fact that the soul exists in some way as, you know, as information, maybe, as you said, uh, after death. Uh, maybe that's a good way of thinking about it as information. So we can explore that thought. Um, we'll go to JK and the motion. Yeah, I like this idea of information that uh, you mentioned that the, uh, that uh, maybe thought, you know, using language and maybe any kind of thought or symbolism or representation is perhaps the closest thing that we might have to what the soul is. It's something that lives on beyond the body, beyond the dissolution of the body. So, so a, uh, you know, uh, so certain thoughts that live on, like the thoughts of Plato and thoughts of uh, other philosophers and then, and um, <clears throat> the spiritual thoughts of religions, different religions, are those that, uh, you know, live on and they kind of like, um, maybe that's the closest that we, we could have to what the soul is. And, um, you know, yeah. And, and let's, let's hold on to that idea about thoughts, because I think that's where we can end today's dialogue. Um, is this this whole thought process that we engage in? You know, this very interesting part that uh, um, that uh, Socrates uh, has, in which you know they're actually looking for that process of recollection and what it is right at the end of today's reading. So let's let's hold on to that, and we'll, I'll actually f flip to that part of the screen as as we go to Moshe. Um, in the philosophy of mind. Um, uh, an old, you you might think of the mind as as the soul. Um, it, certainly, there's uh, something to be said for that particular argument. Uh, there's a, a, a distinction made between between people that have minds and people that don't have minds. And I brought that up earlier when I was talking about a zombie. Um, you know, because a zombie could be walking around. It doesn't follow from the fact. Uh, that it's a zombie that is eating your face off, you know, but it could be, it, you know, it could be walking around and doing things and um, doing things in the world in, in, um, and, and not be conscious at all. Maybe it's a limited number of things that it could do. Um, but we do have, uh, you know, we, if, if, if zombieism is the, is the idea of a physical animation without, uh, you know, without a mind, then mind or, or consciousness would be something that would be that could be added to it or, or, or is separate from you know the physical you know from the physical thing. Now, does it exist after death? Or does it exist? Uh, does it exist before death? That's a you know that's a separate question. But mind is one of those things that enables me to be able to say it enables me to be able to explain action or behavior. You know, you know if I see a person. You know who's playing a game of chess, 
you know, I can explain that by saying, you know, that that he or she is is you know thinking of the rules of the game and the combinations of of um, of what is on the board and looking at, at the moves that the other person is making and that, you know, their mind is making it so that it, this is not simply a, you know, a mechanical thing like two computers uh, uh, playing each other. So I think there's an argument to be made that, 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 that there is a phenomena called mind or consciousness that, that, that I don't know, if it, I guess it requires explanation. Okay. Maybe we need to do more than simply say, well, it's there. Okay. Um, could mind simply be information and something that goes, you know, that gets transferred? I always thought of information, and I could be wrong about this, as uh, an item on a continuum between data and knowledge. You know, I have raw data, you know, I've got ones and zeros, uh, you know, I don't know anything, I don't have any real information there, but information can be derived out of this, you know, these ones and zeros means you know, that the Soviets have a submarine in the Mediterranean Ocean, and we have three submarines outside the, the you know, the, uh, uh, the gates of Gibraltar. Um, but that is, that, is, that is information, but it's not knowledge that we would, you know, that we would talk about, certainly like we talk about it, talk about it here. So could information be passed on from me into you know, let's say a computer, would that be passing my mind into, into the computer? That's a pretty uninteresting kind of entity that you've got there. I mean, if the contents of my, the information that I have is that we have three submarines and the Soviets have one, and they're separated by the Straits of Gibraltar, I don't know if that works for what Plato's talking about as a, you know, talking about as a, uh, as a soul. Uh, on the other hand, I've heard this thing, you know, talked about uh, today several times about things that we know that have been passed on from generation to generation. And I'm reminded of Achilles uh, in Homer. And Achilles was interested in his reputation. What's your reputa reputa rep uh, reputation? Well, it's what they say about you after your death. And certainly we've got examples of great religious leaders and political leaders and scientists who a great deal is said about them after their death. You know, their reputation has succeeded them. I mean, take Plato. I mean, we're talking about a guy who's been dead 2,500 years, and here we are in the 21st century talking over international borders about, you know, about this guy's reputation. So, so I don't know where the reputation exists, but I think that it's but I think that part of that reputation is represents something on the on the continuum, not as information, but as knowledge. And I don't know how it gets passed on, but I don't think it's the kind of thing that you can move, you know, from one, um, you, you know, from one computing object to another computing object. Or if I use the idea that the, and I know I'm rambling here, but this is the last point. You know, the, the materialists, you know, they say that the brain is the mind. Well, suppose my brain and all its little uh, crevices and turning in on itself and things like that gets put into, you know, into a baby's head. Okay. Um, we've transferred, I think, more than the information. Uh, but if it was just the information that we were transmitting, it'd be pretty uninteresting.
Uh, so that that's just my thought points for this. Well, thank you. And, and again, I think you know some very interesting perspectives there, Moshe. And, and you know, I think we're onto something here with what Bill started when he said the word information. And I think Moshe, you took it to kind of another level when you started talking about mind and it really made me think when you use the term, you know, is uh, is information an item on, I think if I got the quote correctly, is information an item on the continuum between data and knowledge? Um, and I think that, that that really makes me think actually, and it makes me actually think about what uh, what we talked about two weeks ago in Philibus in terms of this need to order the data that we have in order to make meaning out of it, you know, and, and it's the soul's job to take the physical data that it's receiving from the five senses and to put it into some sort of order so that it's not just information, but it's also meaningful information. And then I think you, you know, you asked the question, like, what is mind, you know, what's, what defines, and to me, what, what, what defines the limit of a mind? What, where does my mind stop and your mind start? Uh, really fascinating idea. You know, it makes me think, you know, thinking of mathematics and geometry, you know, a mind would have to be its own derivative. Um, and, but, but how do we define, how do we delineate one mind from the other? So really fascinating thoughts there. And that, that idea particularly about information on a continuum between data and knowledge is, is something that I think is, is definitely worth exploring and, and uh, considering. So we'll go to Bill and then JK. Well, you know, uh, Plato lived 2,500 years ago or 2,300, I'm not sure. But yet we're reading his works. And in that sense, his soul still lives because I can, I can feel him. I can, I know what's in his brain. And, you know, what the word, the words are by themselves are just data. But the meaning, when we put them together and, and read them as one and understand them, it becomes knowledge. So he's, he's, his soul is with me right now as we speak. Indeed, and, and it's with me too. And, you know, it's a question of, you know, I think, I think you said you know what, what's in his mind. I think we can all maybe disagree or have different views of what's on his mind um, when he wrote this. Uh, the, the interesting thing about Plato is he never says precisely what's on my mind. He never says, I think this to be the case. Um, so it's an interesting question of why he does that, why he doesn't tell us what's on his mind, uh, why he makes us figure it out. And I think it's maybe to spark this kind of discourse, you know, 2,400 years in the future, um, which leads to some sort of meaning that we derive on our own. And maybe that's part of the mind process, developing our own minds is to derive our own meaning rather than to have others feed their own meaning into our minds. Um, at some point, we need to arrive at our own understanding and meaning, uh, which is a very powerful and uh, empowering idea, I think. Um, so thank you for that. We'll go to JK. Yeah, I, was, yeah, I, I agree with um, what Moshe said about the, um, that the soul can't be just information. Uh, there has to be more than that. And because when you're reading Plato, he's, we're not just getting information. We're getting uh, a sense of um, a meaning and a sense of wholeness and a sense of being. And I think that uh, that's what we get from philosophy uh, as opposed to, you know, some scientific treatise 
that just describes the world as uh, the physical world. Um, so he's talking about, you know, so the soul um, is uh, is really about, um, you know, what what the um, what the sense of wholeness is, you know, what being is, and if we can, you know, uh, live our life like that, then we're living a life with with uh, with a sense of uh, meaning and and a sense of wholeness and and being, and therefore we we could live a life with soul, right? And and so that's that sense of soul. I would be whether it uh, you know lives on after de- your death or not uh, doesn't matter because you already know what that uh, you know how to live your life with that that sense of meaning and wholeness. And so a lot of philosophers, like modern-day philosophers, do not posit um, necessarily a metaphysical soul uh, like Heidegger, but he's talking. But he's he's talking about he's interested in being. You know what is being? Okay, with capital B, and that that is that sense of wholeness and and meaning. Um, that and the way he, if you ask him, you know what the soul is. That's how he would define soul. Interesting use of words, uh, wholeness. Actually, you know, maybe it just it, it's, it's triggering at that connection in my mind. I mentioned, you know, mind being its own derivative. Maybe that sense of being your own derivative is a sense of wholeness. Um, and you know, maybe that's why Socrates said the unexamined life is not worth living. It's it's kind of an unwhole life, you know, where you're reacting to others, but you're not being yourself. Uh, maybe that's one idea there. Um, Steve, your thoughts. Made me think of uh, what Moshe said earlier about uh, the Swerve, which is is also a very good book about the discovery of Lucretius's uh, or the the uh, preserving of Lucretius's uh, work, the nature of things. But I would say that we're not really reading Plato or seeing his mind. We're seeing the representation of what was Plato. That's been translate that's gone through a you know over those 2500 years have gone to you know maybe into arabic maybe into monasteries you know people mis miscopying or reinterpreting or changing or evolving so i think what i would um what i would feel like we're we're looking at is a flow of information a flow of meaning uh that is has has uh, made its way to, you know, like you were saying before about the uncertainty principle. You know, if you z- zoom in on one spot, you can't really measure it. You can't measure that point in time that was Plato's, uh, you know, creating of this or the telling of this. It's 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 changing all the time. It's that. It's not only uh, Plato. It's it's our current what we're doing at this time. Our representation of what uh, what ideas uh, we feel that Plato might have uh, might have had at that time. Really interesting observation there, Steve. It's um, you know I think one of the problems that we have in understanding. Plato or anybody else who wrote so long ago and wrote in a different language. And there were different uses of words in that language at the time is always this issue of translation, you know, and as you said, over 2400 years, 
Plato's been translated in different fashions, you know, from Greek to Latin, from Latin to Italian to English, you know, and all of these, every time he's translated, it results in a different, a slightly different understanding. And maybe that's kind of the, the way our recollection works, because every, every time you recall something, it's slightly different. And here we've got this issue of translators interposing themselves between Plato's original words and the reasons why he wrote those words and to where we're here now today. And certainly, you know, as I was reading on in the in the rest of the dialogue, there is one word in particular that I want to question in translation because it could have a very different effect on my understanding of what Plato was saying. And maybe this goes back to what Bill was saying earlier in terms of uh, knowing Plato now here as we're reading him so many like millennia after he wrote what he did and to really understand his purpose. And I think, you know, we, we only have, you know, maybe about five minutes or so remaining, but I just wanted to raise this whole idea of recollection uh, before we, before we leave. But I, I, Bill, if you wanted to, um, did you want to add something, Bill? Well, I just wanted to, to remark on the uncertainty principle. Mm -hmm. I, I understand that it holds up in physics and it's real because it's been shown by experiments. But I don't know if it applies to the, to the realm of the mind because, you know, as an observer in the mind, we can, we can set, set ourselves apart from what is being observed and just look at what is happening. Now, where that becomes a problem where the uncertainty, where the observer changes what is what is observed is when the bias comes in, when the mind starts playing with with that observation. But without that bias, you know, we can we can possibly see what is really there, keeping the mind open and clear. I would agree. I think that's a good observation. Um, that. Uh, Definitely the, the mind is, well, nobody's established that it's subject to Heisenberg's uncertainty principle, which applies, was developed to apply only to physics, but I don't think it's ever been established that it would apply to the mind, which seems to be unlimited, whereas all of physics is limited. Um, so something that we can definitely um, uh, consider. Um, and, and I think that's why, you know, as we learned in the Republic, you know, Socrates says that the soul has to use reason to mediate between the appetites of the body and the spirit. Uh, and this is maybe how it navigates this uncertainty that's presented to it by the physical world, which he, you know, says in no uncertain terms, you know, the beginning of today's reading, you know, the body just delivers all sorts of nonsense. I think he uses the word nonsense uh, to the soul and the soul has to sort it all out. Um, just wanted to maybe conclude and just, if, if we, can just stay for a few more minutes uh, just to conclude today's discussion with this little bit about recollection. And, uh, you know, so I think uh, to take it back to the idea of everything coming from opposites. Um, and here at 73C to 75A, Socrates is saying, um, you know, do we not also agree that when knowledge comes to mind in this way is recollection? What way do I mean? Like this, when a man sees or hears in some way, uh, in, in some other way, or in some other way perceives one thing, and not only knows that thing, but also thinks of another thing of which the knowledge is not the same, but different, are we not right to say that he recollects the second things that come into his mind? And then Simeon says, how do you mean? Socrates says this, 
Things such as this, to know a man is surely a different knowledge from knowing a liar. Liar mean L-Y-R-E, not somebody who tells mistruths. The liar, the instrument. So, well, you know, you know what happens to lovers. When they see a liar, a garment, or anything else that their beloved is accustomed to use, they know the liar, and the image of the boy to whom it belongs comes into their mind. This is recollection, just as someone on seeing Simeus often recollects Cebes. And there are thousands of other, of other such occurrences. Simeus agrees, thousands indeed. Socrates says, is this kind of thing not recollection of a kind, especially so when one experiences about things that one had forgotten because one had not seen them for some time? Simeus agrees. And then so they say, well, okay, so one thought will trigger another thought. So I might, you know, as I said earlier, I might think of Plato, and then my next thought might be of Aristotle, or I might think about Plato's dialogues, or I might think about Socrates, or I might think about what I had for lunch, but all of these uh, ideas are different, uh, but some are the same, right? So I might think of uh, Plato, you know, at one point in his life, and I think about him at another point in his life. And so, again, it's this idea of, you know, establishing this kind of sequence of our thoughts in our minds, you know, as we're talking about mind, and I just wanted to raise this kind of this interesting idea about the sequencing of our thoughts and the sequencing he's saying in this is based on that which is either different or the same. And to know whether something is different or the same, you always need to know where the equal point is, the, the point of no difference. Um, so I, I thought this was a really interesting take on this, and maybe we could start our next episode on this kind of point and then take it to the next uh, level, which is when they start talking about uh, the realm of the visible and the invisible. So again, the you know the physics versus the the metaphysics of the soul, and they start talking about the uh, composites, which are the physic the physical items, and the non composites, which are those items that go on in being forever and ever. Uh, but I just wanted to highlight this this idea about the thought process and this idea about all knowledge is recollection, which is something that. Uh, comes through in Plato a number of times. You know, certainly there's a very specific reference that's made in this uh, in this section of the dialogue to what happened in the dialogue Mino when uh, Socrates brings the slave, the uneducated slave, and starts quizzing him on um, on geometric properties. Suddenly, the slave just seems to know this without having been taught. But it's it, in in this dialogue, Socrates says, if you if you question a person in, a, in the right way, which I take to mean question the person in, in terms of ratios of differences and similarities, that knowledge starts to come out without having been taught. Um, so it's a very powerful thought, I think, and something that maybe we can consider as we go into the next episode. Uh, and so I think I, I should probably end today's uh, episode on this point, uh, and it's been an absolutely fascinating discussion. I think there's a number of points that I'm really, you know, taking forward from this. And I think this idea of, of uh, you know, the soul as representing some sort of information that's conserved is, is a, a really powerful thought that I'm going to take forward from this. So, um, as I said earlier, we'll continue with the Fido in our next two episodes. So, the next one, we will uh, go from where we left off today to 98B. And there's a really interesting piece of logic at 97E that I would point out in particular uh, if, uh, if you have a chance to read that. that It's about a paragraph in particular at 97E. That would be uh, the point where I'd like to kind of end up next 
the next session on, but I think it's a very important point about logic and and maybe about the, the process in which we actually think. Um, so uh, again, I wanted to thank everybody for being here and um, look forward to seeing everybody, I hope in, in two weeks when we continue our discussion of the Fido. And uh, as I am about to end the recording, I would invite anybody who wishes to stay online, uh, to stay with us um, for a casual discussion on uh, Plato or philosophy in general, and it will be unrecorded. So we will end today's recording with uh, thank you all very much uh, for uh, attending and look forward to seeing you in two weeks. Bye.